Randy's Donuts is LA's donut shop, and uh, the iconic building with the giant donut on top of the roof um, has put them into into all kinds of different movies. Uh, that's how most people know them, but uh, they've been around since 1952. This year, they're celebrating 70 years, and there's a reason they've been around for all that time, not because of a gimmicky uh, gimmicky architecture. They're, they're around because of their quality. Now, Mark Collegian, who's my guest on today's show, has bought the brand, bought it in 2015, and along with his daughters, is absolutely blowing the brand up. As you'll hear about in this interview, uh, expanding first in Southern Ca- uh, California, then into Nevada, and now all over the world. Uh, tons of great information today, lots of value. I hope you enjoy it. Stick around for my interview with Mark Collegian. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly podcast all about helping chefs and operators build more profitable restaurants. Each week we toggle back and forth between a monologue style format and an interview, but the goal is always the same, to take complicated concepts, make them both understandable and actionable. Why? Because like I always say, information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Now, COVID is retreating, and despite easing restrictions, now we're, we're all still strapped into this roller coaster ride because of fluctuating food prices. That, combined with continuing staffing challenges, it makes it more important than ever to control your costs so that you can remain profitable. Margin Edge is a restaurant management software that uses POS integration and invoice data to show you your food and labor costs in real time so you can make informed decisions in the moment rather than weeks after the period ends. By automating your invoice processing and totally digitizing your back office, Margin Edge saves your team hours on paperwork and gives you instant insights to manage your prime costs. Take control of your costs with real-time data. Best of all, listeners of this show get to try Margin Edge free, absolutely free for 30 days. No contract, no setup fee, free and unlimited training and support for you. Learn more at marginedge.com slash chip. That's M-A-R-G-I-N-E-D-G-E dot com slash C-H-I-P. Now. I want to talk to you about a course I'm running. It's called Restaurant Recharge. How to turn your restaurant around in eight weeks. Two months, right? That's the question. Can you uh, can you turn a restaurant around in two months? Take it from not profitable to profitable. Can you take it from, uh, from just barely squeaking by to double-digit profit margins? That's the question I'm asked all the time. I coach clients all around the country to help them achieve that, and I put together a two-month program. 40 lessons, right? daily lessons every Monday through Friday for eight weeks. If you come to this program, you do every lesson and the assignment that goes with it every single day. Show up at the weekly check-ins, right? We do weekly group coaching calls that go along with this. I'm only opening up this up to a, to a small number of people and I want you to join me. The way to join me is to visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash course. Join the program. It's eight weeks. You can do anything in short sprints. Come be a part of that. Learn all about it. Restaurant Strategy 
strategypodcast.com slash course. You'll get access, unlimited access to this course, 40 different lessons, all different videos, a huge resource bundle. And then on top of that, I'm adding the group coaching calls, weekly hour-long check-ins with you and everybody else who are going through the same thing you are to help keep you accountable help keep you on track so that you can hit your goals. Again, join the Restaurant Recharge program. Filling spots now. It's going to start in May. It's going to run through May and June. Take this opportunity to get your restaurant in shape. Again, restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash course, C-O-U-R-S-E. I hope you'll join us. So I'm really excited uh, about my guest today, a gentleman named Mark Collegian. He's the owner of Randy's Donuts, famous Randy's Donuts out in uh, California. Uh, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chip. Thanks for having me. Listen, uh, this place is iconic. It's uh, it's is recognizable in L.A. along the skyline as the Empire State Building is here in New York City where I am. You've owned the the place since 2015. Let's start. Let's start there. What what is Randy's, and what prompted you to uh, to take it over? Well, it's kind of a cool story. You know, I grew up in L.A., spent a lot of years, went to a pretty famous high school, Loyola High School. Um, our football team was, you know, number one or number two in the country for a high school team. I mean, these guys, you know, our front line averaged 280. You know, six foot five. It's it craziness. Then um, we used to go on the bus to Inglewood to play our football games because we didn't have a big enough stadium on campus. And every time we'd go by, we would drive by Randy's Donuts. Well, little did I know that some, you know, 45 or so years later, you know, I'd become the owner of Randy's. And, and how that came about was... I'm in the casino business right now, in addition to, to owning Randy's Donuts. And it's not really a business that I think suits uh, my daughters very well, and, and I'm kind of glad to know that. Uh, so I was sitting around on my computer, and I tell this story a lot. I'm sitting around on my computer and thinking, well, what can I get them into? And I go on this website called Biz Buy Sell, which is kind of famous for having... Uh, not a lot of great businesses on there, despite there being thousands of listings. Right. And so I found this little line that said, well-known restaurant over 50 years in business for sale. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, been around 50 years. It's good for my daughters who were, you know, USC graduates and smart girls and, you know, are in the business anyway. But, you know, 50 years been around, that, that's got to be a good thing. And I'm thinking it's some of the old Jewish delis in the yeah. Beverly Hills, West LA area. Right. So I call and this girl answers and she says, it's Randy's Donuts. And I said, whoa, how much are they asking? She told me. I said, how much does it make? She told me. I said, fine, write it up. I'm buying it. Because I knew what would happen if the word got out that Randy's was for sale. And as a, and as a, as a kind of a funny side note, I probably got death threats for three to four months from every restaurant person, actor, athlete, who over the last 30, 40 years had told the two brothers who owned it that I bought it from that, you know, when you're ready to sell, I'm buyer, I'm your buyer. Don't, yeah. don't forget about <laughs> me. And they forgot about everybody and just posted it on this website. That's funny. 
So you came across it almost almost by accident. Yeah. You did your due diligence. It, I mean, do you know how long it was available? I mean, was it just there on there a matter of days and you, you snapped it up? Oh, or? one day. Yeah. You know, sometimes you get lucky, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, so what? So what exactly was it about? It was it just looking at the numbers and say, "Hey, this makes sense. I'll buy it." Or what about it? And besides the nostalgia of of driving by in the bus, what about this particular brand? You, you know, you just cannot replace a, an iconic brand like Randy's Donuts. You have an opportunity to buy something like that. I mean, you get it, Carnegie Deli. You'd buy it. Uh, we have a lot of you know one offs out here. Uh, California Felipe's, Pink's Hot Dogs, things like that. You get a chance to buy, you, you jump on it. Um, and that's how this kind of was for me. Plus, I have a, a family friend named Bill Allen. Bill was president of Fleming's Steakhouses, Outback. I mean, just been in the business for 30, 40 years. Has backed almost, his equity firm has backed almost every new startup. And I went to Bill and I said, Bill, what's the, you know, should I do this? He says, don't even think, you know, just go ahead. Um, and I asked him, I said, well, how does a business that's been around for 50 years fail? And he said, well, interestingly, they had just uh, commissioned a report from a think tank. And at the end of the day, after hundreds of thousands of dollars, the answer was, the answer given by, you know, 85% of the people was, it's just not the same anymore. Huh. And when you peel that back, you find out that some guy like me or someone who inherited the business thought they were smarter than everybody else who'd come before them, you know, and said, well, you know, I can save two cents here. I can save three cents here. And before you know it, they've eroded the product. They've damaged their name. And... You know, they're out of business and they've done the business a disservice. So then then talk about that time when you came in 2015. Where was the business when you took it over? And what did you do then when you uh, when you got the keys to the kingdom? Okay, at that time, it was doing about a million five a year in sales, which for a single donut shop, you know, is great. A lot of donuts. Um, That's a lot of donuts. We we, you know, at this point, it's come six years later. We we're doing about four and a half million a year in sales out of that one store, and our profits are considerably different. I looked at the place. I sat in the parking lot for days while escrow was going through its its process, and I noticed a few things. Number one, that there was a lot of cars and a lot of customers who'd come by, see these enormous lines down the block, and would turn away. Yeah. Okay. So I said, well, what's, what's that problem? And I looked and basically I concluded they didn't have enough bodies in the sales portion of the business and didn't have enough windows. So I immediately added two new service windows to the building, added about two or three more pe persons per shift. And not that it would be eliminated lines, but, you know, we get through them a lot faster now. And I think that's that was the main thing I did. Plus not touching the recipes, not touching, you know, the bakers who've been there forever. So, and how quickly, so how long, I mean, you make it sound so easy, right? Oh, this is, this is what I did. How long did that all take? You know, what, what was that process? Took, like about, a to year, get it to, took about a year yeah. to get it under, 
you know, to get it under our belt where we really knew everything about the business before we looked at expansion. Um, and we've expanded quite a bit since then, but, but we sat with the business, learned all the facets of it. Yeah. Okay. So, and I want to get to that. I don't want to, I don't want to get to it too soon. I mean, we're going to come back to this idea of the expansion because, because you've really grown this brand in a, in a, in an incredible way. I want to talk about working with family because you mentioned your daughters. You said, you know, you're, you're in the casino business and you didn't think that was quite, uh, quite going to do it for them. So you came across this, this was going to be right for them. Talk to me about their role here and talk to me about your relationship with them in as far as the business. They are the business. Okay. Okay. I mean, I oversee everything. I make perhaps the larger decisions, what to invest in, what locations to open up. But as far as the operations go, they are, they are knee deep. Okay. And again, we're talking about, I have three daughters. One daughter is still a senior at USC and the other two graduated from there. One was one of the youngest talent agents in Hollywood and the other one was in the, worked in the supply chain management at Shake Shack in New York. Mm-hmm. So they brought some talents with them. But, but my girls, I've taught them from an early age, you've got to know every aspect of a business in order to, to run that business. And you've got to work twice as hard as everybody else. I mean, I can tell you, even for example this week, with all the, you know, the NFC championship game going on at SoFi Stadium and the Super Bowl next week, my girls get in there, and when some, when there's a shortage, they're helping. They're decorating. They're frying. They're doing whatever needs to get done to keep our customers happy. And they're, you know, we don't we don't stand for prima donnas, you know, kids that just want to stand around, hold a cup of coffee, coffee and play owner. In my house, you work, and they're all workers, and I couldn't be any prouder of them, and. Honestly, in my, I mean, I'm 61 years old, and it's been the best joy of my life is working with my kids. So, again, you make it sound so easy, and uh, I got a bunch of clients which are, you know, generational. It's, uh, you know, mother and father passing it down to their kids. Uh, sure. You know, uh, father dies, kids take it over. I mean, it's a lot of, I think especially as we look over the country that that's a lot of what happens small business is really a family business in in many in many towns many cities so but you make it sound so easy and and is it really that easy or what did you have to do to what did you have to put into place to make it easy well i had to you know was never an issue of working hard it was more of a transition for them to you know from behind a desk from a more elevated position where they were to really get down, down and dirty, put the apron on and, and, and get to work. And that took, that was a bit of a culture shock, but you know, they picked it up quickly. Um, yeah, I can remember, <coughs> excuse me, with our first new store opening, I mean, they were there 24 hours a day getting it, you know, getting everything that was needed to get it. And that's, you know, honestly, that's how I raised them to take care of their own, their own business. It's how I was raised by my father. Um, and so that part, you know, is easy, but I do appreciate the problem with working with family. Um, you know, you, you've got certain people who are entitled, feel entitled, you know, the old expression born on third and think they hit a triple. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you've got those guys lying around, 
but uh, but we work hard in our house. So then, but talk to so then talk to me about this. Invariably, there's going to be disagreements, you know, in any business, in any you know, in any sort of collaboration. Do you guys have a groundwork, uh, some ground rules about how those disagreements are worked out? Because it's uh, it's touchy with any sort of collaboration, um, any sort of partnership, oh. and certainly when you get into family, it's even more so. So how do you how do you deal with that? Because certainly you, you can't see nobody sees eye to eye a hundred percent of the time. It's easy. They yell to my wife about me. She yells to me about what they're saying until they've eventually beaten me to the ground and I give in. So it's uh, so your your uh, your wife is the linchpin. Yeah, they they know where to go when there's a problem. But no, it's you know it's it, it it's a give and take. It really is. I mean, I've been a person who's always run my own ship, and. You know, while I have, you know, I'm, I'm very loyal to my team. My team is, my teams are all very loyal to me. I've had the same management in place in all of my businesses for the last 10, 15 years. And, you know, I take care of them. And my, our, our philosophy, and I pass it on to my kids when it comes to working with, with our employees and staff is, you know what, you take care of me, I'm going to take care of you. And, and that's a philosophy that, that, that I've instilled in them and that we've, you know, we've, we've passed along to the employees. Yeah, so that brings up a, one of the things I wanted to talk about because uh, I, be, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about staffing and uh, especially at a time like this. You've talked a lot about loyalty, yeah. about keeping people on when you took over the company 2015 and taking care of people and keeping them, uh, although I'm sure you're not immune to, to what's been going on the last year or so. So talk to me about how you guys have been affected and what you've done or what you continue to do uh, over this last year? You know, we have faced absolutely the same challenges everyone else has faced. Um, you know, you, you've got so many issues from stimulus payments, keeping people at home to those who are actually sick and affected, you know, by the, by the pandemic, you know, it's been a chore. We've never had to close a store. We've never changed our hours, okay? We have just been, you know, incurring the expense of a lot of overtime, um, a lot of people who are pulling double, triple, you know, duties. And, you know, again, we take care of our employees who go the extra mile for us. And there's been times, you know, where there's been shortages of employees, shortages of product, because, you know, as you're, as you're short on the back of the house, you're short of items to sell. Um, but we, we've been able to muddle through it all, um, even expanding. So let's talk about the expansion. So again, you bought the company in 2015, kind of steadied the ship, kind of took care of that one main building. When, and you said that took about a year for it to feel like it was, it was really where it was meant to be. Right. Talk to me about when you started expanding or when you got the idea that you could or should expand. Well, the plan was always from day one. You know, here I bought this. I, to me, I bought a store, but more importantly, I bought a brand. And it, it was well known that the two brothers who owned it, great guys, come to everything, come to every new store opening. They come to the store once a week at least to chat with the, all the employees and so forth. Yeah. But they were very content with where they were. You know, two guys, they worked their butts off seven days a week, and they weren't interested in expansion and had multiple opportunities. I mean, I was aware of those opportunities. They made me, 
you know, it was very clear that they passed up a lot of a lot of chances. Mm-hmm. And so I, my plan from the start was to turn this brand into a statewide brand, a nationwide, and an international. But after we learned, you know, what the heck we were doing, so that took a year. And then I naively, okay, said to myself, "All right, all I need is a broker. I got a pocket full of money. Well, let's go." Boy, I got a lesson. Um, you know, especially in Southern California, finding locations is very difficult. Finding drive-throughs is almost impossible. Yeah, being able to buy properties that you could convert into a drive-through is equally impossible. Um, so I had to get I had to get my mind straight on it's not going to be as easy as I thought it was going to be. Um, and I went through a couple of brokers before I found the right broker, Ralph Simarusi at and Westpac Partners, and he gave me the roadmap for expansion, and I followed it. And it was very focused on, this is your main location in Inglewood. Let's move out from there in an organized manner instead of shotgunning, taking a shotgun approach where people were showing me things in San Diego, showing me things in San Francisco, and... I'm like, yeah, that looks great. That looks great. But it would have created a lot of logistical nightmares. So explain, what, what do you mean by that, um, logistical nightmares? Well, just trying to manage one store in, in different areas uh, just is, is, doesn't make sense. You know, I believe that you need a three-store model minimum in order to create, in a new area, in order to create a management team, that can be that can be cost effective. Um, for example, we are opening up in Las Vegas our own company stores, and we're doing that because we are proving our model as working outside of Southern California. Because sometimes we hear from prospective franchisees, "Yeah, you guys have the best donuts. You're the best, but you're you're Southern California. How do we know you're going to work in another area?" So we purchased some some properties, and we're going to be opening up four stores in Las Vegas this year, uh, one in a couple of months, one in a few months after that, and then the other two by the end of the year. But in order to do that, I've created a whole new team in Las Vegas, which starts with a, I'm not going to say, I don't want this to come out wrong, overpriced okay, area manager. Okay, and I say overpriced only in the sense that he still he starts with only one store. Yeah, but his skill set is so far beyond operating one store. But you have to, you know, you you got to make that commitment to your area. And when you've got at least three to four stores, that's one solid management team. And you have to be willing to spend that extra money to get that talent. I mean, we were very very fortunate to hire a gentleman named Angel Crockford, who worked for a company that had 54 uh, units, many of which were Duncans uh, on the East Coast and in Florida. So you have to be willing to go out and get that talent that that you're basically gonna use a 10% of his ability on the first store, but by the end of the year, you know, you're, you're taking advantage of his abilities. Yeah. So we've done that already. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's a return that'll, that'll 
start paying dividends in 12 to 18 months. Absolutely. It's not like you're sitting on this for five years. Yeah. So, And the other thing we did too, the other thing we did too is we, I don't want to say stole, but um, we, we are very fortunate to have a gentleman named Jason Askinosi, who is head of our real estate development now. You know, I learned pretty quick that trying to do everything yourself is not a good formula. So we went out and we hired the best guy we could find who happened to be a, you know, a 10-year employee at Duncan. I feel like I'm raping Duncan, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> They're okay. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah, they'll be fine. They'll be fine. No, he was a, he was a manager, you know, real estate developer for them, uh, manager of the year, and had been there for 10 years doing, doing stores all over the country. Well, when, when they merged... Uh, excuse me, when they when Duncan was purchased by Inspire Brands, you know, they had a lot of duplicate positions and they made him an offer and it's not what he wanted. Um, and fortunately, I was able to grab him based again on my relationship with Ralph Simarusi, which again is a little kind of a quick funny story. When Jason used to work for Duncan, okay, my friend Ralph used to host these charity events. And he'd always ask me to supply donuts. So there's a giant donut table full of boxes for all the don donors to, to take home with them. Well, I caught him on camera, Jason, trying to walk off with one of the boxes. So we used that as blackmail against him for two years <laughs> uh, before he came over to us. You know, you can't work for Duncan and be seen stealing Randy's donut boxes. <laughs> But uh, that, that's helped us a great deal. Today's episode of Restaurant Strategy is also brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern team management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. Effective team management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially now as restaurants start to open back up and, and, and expand their teams. Trusted by more than half a million restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the tools you need to simplify scheduling, to easily manage time and attendance, to communicate with your team, and finally to retain your top talent. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll systems you already use, turning your team into a competitive advantage for your business. Right now, Restaurant Strategy podcast listeners can get three months absolutely free to get started go to sevenshifts.com slash restaurant strategy that's the number seven s-h-i-f-t-s dot com slash restaurant strategy to get three months of industry-leading team management software for free so talk to me about your team because this is so a lot of the listeners of this show are small independents right they got one unit. Maybe they got a concept that has a couple locations or they got a handful of different concepts in a, in a market. But for the most part, the listeners of this show aren't big chains, big groups, but right, they're, they're small. And oftentimes you got to wear a lot of hats, right? Which is inevitable, right. especially when a company's young. But talk to me about how you grew the team, why that was important, and, and how, how you began to do that to, to, um, to cherry pick and, 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 how did you decide who you needed around you? You know, we went through a lot of coffee cup holders, unfortunately. You know, the uh, VPs of operations, area managers who want to hold a cup of coffee, walk into their store and go, yep, everything looks great. 
keep drinking their coffee and go home. Yeah. So we had to learn through through a few of those uh, until we were able to to hire Samara Friedman, who has over 15 years experience in operations. That was very helpful to us. Um, we had to hire area managers um, and so forth, and we had to teach. The, the The hardest thing was taking our head baker, Ismail Garcia, who is the heart and soul of the place. You know, been there for over 20 years, 24 years. Had to get him out of, you're not operating just one store anymore. You are overseeing all these stores and training for franchisees yeah. and training in new stores. So that took a lot of work to get him to understand how his role was different because his, his, get, his go-to move was to always go in the store and do it himself. Yeah. You know, so it had to train him to, to, to see the bigger picture. But again, it goes back to that initial, that initial comment I made, you've got to overhire at the beginning and you have to be willing to do that. And you have to accept that you might get burnt by a couple of people. But again, when we hired when we hired Samara, we had the main store and just one other store, El Segundo. Yep. But again, I hired a person who had abilities beyond just the two store level. You know, and that's a commitment that's hard. Yeah. For small for small restaurant owners, because they're just seeing the profits, you know, go yep. elsewhere. Yep, I I totally I totally understand. So, but you had the vision for where it was going to go. Let me understand, because uh, I believe really strongly in systems, right? That if we build a system for whatever it is, you fill in the blank. If we can systematize it, that makes it replicable. If we make it replicable, that makes it scalable. Yes. Um, and oftentimes, independents who just have one location don't understand the power of that. And I try to convince them, that, you know, if you can make it, again, you can systematize it, you make it replicable, you don't need to be here. Right, you can be here if you want. You don't need to be here, but at the very least, what you're talking about is you can't scale it until you get that. So, talk to me about 2015 when you came in. What were the systems in place, or was it just hey, everybody knew what to do? What systems were already there? What systems did you have to put into place? There were no systems in place. I mean, they used an old-fashioned cash register. <laughs> you know, they took the money home every day. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody knew how to do what they knew how to do. Um, and that sounds simplistic, but when you're talking about scaling, it's a whole nother ball of wax. Um, right. You know, to get ourselves in a situation where we could scale properly and also offer franchising, you know, the training and the manuals and everything, we really, it took almost a year and a half to two years. Okay, to get to the point where all everything that was in Ismail Garcia's head had to get in a training manual. Yeah. Okay. So we again we had, we went with the best. We used Stuart Hirschman at DLA Piper in Chicago, who is the number one franchise attorney for franchisors in the country. He guided us. We were very fortunate to be referred to an excellent uh, manual writer. And that's all that person does is take all the pictures, all the, you know, everything we're telling them and, and sit down and turn it into a, a, a manual that other people could follow. Right. 
you know. And then we had to train our head baker, Ismail, to train according to the manual. So there was a lot of that 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 took you know took a lot of effort, you know, to do that. And then for scaling for ourselves, you know, we grew to seven stores locally. Um, again, if I if the opportunities were there, I would have done a lot more myself in that time period, because again, we had to scale in order to prove our concept. Yeah, yeah, you know. And the the, the other thing I think that that younger, smaller scale restaurant owners have to deal with is you've got a great product. You know, you make the best pad thai, you make the best whatever whatever it is in, in your in your specialty. I don't want to say vultures, but you've got all the private equity guys and the and the venture capitalists who want to throw money at you and take over your business. And you've really got to refrain from jumping at the first amount of money that comes along. Um, you're going to lose control. Yeah. And I don't think you want to do that. You know, I think it's important to keep control of your product more than anything else. So talk to me about that. Uh, this is this is really this is really great conversation. I, I, I want to go back to to talk about product and brand. And I want. So aside from a giant donut stuck on the roof of a building that's recognizable by all, what is Randy's? So let's talk about the product. Like, yeah. like, what was it that makes it so special that gave it the staying power? You know, one thing we say is people come to see the giant donut, but they come back because we have the best donuts. And, and we truly do. And the reasons why we do are actually very simple. We make everything by hand, okay? Automated companies that use, and I don't want to call them out, but there are several companies that go automated with everything, and there's more and more going to automation every day because of the labor problems and because it's cheaper to, to create an automated brand. Um, we obviously recognize that it's cheaper to do it that way, but we don't believe we're ever going to get the same product that we, that we do. Um, you know, again, everything's by hand recipes that have been passed down from head baker to head baker for the last 70 years. We're selling our celebrating our 70th anniversary this year. Yeah. Big. Although I have to pick a date because nobody knows exactly what day it was <laughs> in 1952. But, you know, we also buy the best ingredients. We really do. And we have our own flour, which is the heart and soul of any baking operation. We have our own flour proprietarily made for us by the largest baking company in the United States. And nobody else can copy us. Nobody else can get their hands on it. We've worked for almost two years to develop our own, uh, our own flour. Uh, we, and we do everything different than, than most places because we, you know, being trying to be prudent, we examined the automated approach and we found out that even if we wanted to, we couldn't do it because their equipment is all based on being made, for example, being in the proofer for 35 minutes. And we don't do that. Yeah. We do things, different temperatures and, um, and so forth. But you know, our bakers, nobody gets to bake until they've gone through the training 
Um, we also really instill in our people the notion that we don't care about the donuts. Okay? Care about throwing them away. It, we don't throw, I shouldn't say that. We don't throw them away. We'll donate, we donate them at the end of the night. But if a donut doesn't meet the friar's you know, expectations, mm -hmm. he can put it aside. The decorator can put it aside. The salesperson can put it aside. Because we don't want to sell a product, you know, that isn't up to our standards. But that commitment and that willingness to spend that money on your ingredients. I look at many other stores, and I can go into a donut shop, okay? And I'm not a baker by trade, okay? But I can go into a donut shop. I can look at their glazed donut, which is what I do. I judge any donut shop by their glazed donut, just like I judge any restaurant by its hamburger. If you don't make a great hamburger, everything else probably isn't going to be that great either. Um, and you go in there and you see a lot of donuts that are yellowish in color, really sweet looking. It's because they're not using the same quality you know, ingredients. And I understand that from a neighborhood standpoint, okay? Because a neighborhood store is going to be, you know, if they make five, six, seven hundred donuts a day, you know, that's good. That's good sales for them. The, you know, the mom and pa are going to make the money they want to, you know, they want to make. But you really can't afford more expensive ingredients. And I think that's a, that's a flaw in their, in their thinking, but I do understand it. So Randy's about quality. It's about these recipes being passed down. It's about this handmade thing. Then talk to me about, and this is, again, where I think the whole thing, conversation sort of loops together. Um, talk to me about how you teach that, how you train for that, how do you, how you build a culture that will scale, that, that values that in the way that, that, that you value it? You know, it's a great question. It's, it's a lot of trial and error. You know, I, I, tell, I tell the people who do the hiring in any of my businesses, if you're, if you're right 50% of the time, wow, you're a superstar <laughs> um, in who you're, who you're, who you're hiring. Um, but it's a weeding out process. If you're not going to be committed to the product that you're making, if you're not taking pride in what you're producing out there, then we don't want you to work for us. So easier said than done, especially right now. So talk to me about talk to me about how you've been able to maintain that sort of standard, those sort of uh, that sort of culture, especially in light of this sort of staffing crunch. And it's not that I got your question. I really, I really want to know that because I think a lot of people believe about their businesses that what what you're saying, you know, here. So uh, help me understand how you've done that. It's treating everyone like family. It's caring about their problems. You know, it's not jumping on their back because they didn't show up to work, you know, one day or they were tired or they were sick or they had to do something. It's really treating them with respect uh, because they don't get that in a lot of places. You know, unfortunately, there's a lot of layers of management in some places. And, you know, the people who are on the body, you got to treat the people who are at the, the lower responsible positions the same as you do the ones on top. You really do. You got to treat your head baker the same as as the lady who's sitting there dipping the donuts by hand into the icing. 
Yeah. We try to do that. Yeah. And how is that instilled in the other leaders that you bring in, the area managers and all of that? How do you get how do you get buy-in from them? Or is it a matter of just being right 50% of the time that there's people who are going to buy into that and there's people who aren't? Again, we've had coffee cup holders. <laughs> you know, we've made mistakes. You know, I think what you have to do is you have to look beyond somebody's resume and experience and look through them and write at the person. You know, is this the kind of person who's going to treat my business like theirs? Are they going to take care of it? Are they going to mother it? You know, I don't know if that's a real proper PC term or whatever. No, I get it. But I'll give you, I'll give you an example of what I did. Oh, gosh, I don't want to say it. But I guess 35 years, 30 years ago or more, I had a woman come to me in my law firm um, that was looking for a job as a secretary. I had 15 lawyers that were hiring people, you know, left and right. And she came, and I sat with her for about half an hour, and she was such a motherly type, okay, with no administrative experience whatsoever. And I immediately on that day said, I'm not hiring you as a secretary. You, you are the new administrator for the firm. And she's like, but I don't. And so, but I don't know, but I don't know. That's okay. I'll teach you. You will learn. Okay. She was with me for 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so you really got to look at the person and you can, you, you can get a lot of people who, you know, maybe their resume isn't as strong as someone else's resume, but they've got the passion. They've got the heart. They're, you know, they're trying to do something for themselves, their family, and they see it as an opportunity. You know, I tell people, when you come to work for me, you should come with the expectation that it is your last job you're ever going to have. Awesome. So It doesn't always work out. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's a, good, it's a good mentality to go into, and I, I understand. I think the listeners will, too. Talk to me about this growth strategy. I want to go back to this because uh, you talked about how some of these were were your own properties and now you're looking at the franchise model how many uh how many individual locations do you have now how many of them are owned by you guys and how many of them are franchises okay so right now we have seven stores that we are operating as a company we have one more store that is already opened as a franchise in the united states in california and we have about another six or eight that will open this year from franchises so we started franchising right when COVID hit. I mean, it was just ring that COVID bell and, you know, we jumped right in the next day. So we really had a lot of downtime where people just, and rightfully so, were concerned, you know, risk adverse. Um, so this year, actually January of 2021, is when people started to feel a little bit better about where the world was going. So in that amount of time, we sold over a hundred franchises in development. Yeah. And they are just now starting to open up. But internationally, because the whole process to get through licensing and registration and all of that is much easier, we opened in 2019 our first international store in Korea. They now have four stores. They're opening their fifth store in a couple of weeks. Each store is doing well over two million dollars. Uh, a year in sales 
We've opened up two stores are open in in uh, Saudi Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, KSA. We're opening in France in about 30, 45 days, in Philippines, in Morocco. Um, and we are talking just almost to every region in the country right now. Wow. So um, and, and domestically, with bringing Jason on, we're moving quickly through the country. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this, I mean, this sounds like it's going to grow. It's going to spread like wildfire. But, but let me say, let me, let me add one thing, too. We are starting what I call our first phase of, of expansion, of, of development through franchisees. We're only working with experienced multi-unit operators. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think the, the mom-pa stores, the single franchisees, you know, will come in, a, in another wave after we, we see what holes, you know, or what opportunities are left. Um, I think the mistake that a lot of smaller beginning franchise operations make is they're so hungry yeah. to get stores open and get recognition that, you know, they're, they're forgetting about how much training is, is needed with these uh, operators. So then, so then talk to me about that, because I think you're absolutely right. And I think, uh, obviously, you sort of admit that, that that makes sense or you can understand why they do that. How did you sort of resist that temptation and and go the path you're going? I think it's just seeing the bigger picture. You know, the longer the long game, so to speak. Um, you know, I'm 61. I'm not doing this forever. Uh, my daughters, you know, and, and will be. And so we really we don't look at just the next 12 months or even the next five years. We look down the road and. And, and really, if you set the right foundation at the beginning, you can get there. Um, you know, we're fortunate enough to have enough financial backing that we don't need to take those some of those risks that maybe others will take in a rush to expand their brand. Because you know, it's it's you know, it's FOMO, it's you know, it's envy, it's it's all of that. They'll see the the. I don't know, the Chinese restaurant, whatever, it doesn't matter. They'll see a similar concept expanding and they'll be like, well, I can do that. Why can't, you know, I want to get out there and do that yeah. as quickly. Okay. Yeah. Um, not everybody's going to be Panda. I mean, we're Panda Express. We're never going to be Dunkin' Donuts. I mean, yeah. I really think that we are going to, you know, within five years be the second largest in the world. But, you know, you're talking 40 years of franchising before you're one of these big guys. Yeah. So talk to me. What have you guys learned then in these early days of franchising? What have you done right? What have, What do you wish you'd done right? We learned from the first few stores that we did franchising to get them even more training than even we thought they needed. Okay. Okay. Problems come up. Because you're making everything by hand, right? When you look at a product and you say, you know, that one's a little burnt, that these aren't cooked enough, these, you know, whatever the issue may be, it takes a long time to realize what the problem is and to be able to fix the problem. Now, fortunately, our franchisees have been able to rely on Ismail Garcia through video, you know, Zoom calls and so forth. 
and he sees it and he knows what the problem is. But I think we learned from early on more. You can't give them enough mm. training, and you have to resist their demands to open their store faster because they've entered into a lease and they're going to start paying rent, you know, on the first of next next month. So they really want to get open by that date. Um, we made a couple of mistakes that way, and we've learned from that. The more training, the better. And so the properties that might have opened a little bit too soon because they weren't quite ready, can you talk, because again, you started talking about brand and brand equity, which is ultimately where I want to kind of land this conversation, but this goes right with it. How how did that or, or did that damage the brand and, and how do you then recover from it, you know, as you're, as you're heading into a, a new market? Well, we avoided it because we were so hands-off. And we made, they knew that they could rely on, on us. And at this stage, you know, without 200 units out there um, in operation, we were able to send additional bakers, give them the additional training, albeit on the job um, training, in order to avoid uh, any perceived problems. And, and we did that. Gotcha. And again, Great. you have to be willing to spend that money to give that extra training because when you take Joe and you send him to Bakersfield or wherever to give the extra training, you've got to bring somebody in to do Joe's, Joe's job. Yeah, yeah. So you have to just be willing to invest that money. And it's hard for the young, you know, it's hard for the guy who's, you know, or the woman who's got their store and they're doing great and they really want to open up that second store. Um, they got to be a little more patient, I think, because you can, you know, the old saying, right? You haven't lived until you lost money in food. Uh, <laughs> Everybody's lost you, money you in gotta food. You got to be careful. You got to be careful. Yeah. So the, talk to me about how you keep tabs on brand and quality and all that in a place on the other side of the planet. You know, it's hard. It's a spe- It's been very difficult. And it has been because... You know, you just can't pop over. And we would be willing to pop over, but with these quarantines out there, I mean, our, I mean, it's we we do everything by Zoom, of course. But our Korean, you know, uh, franchisee was like, "Hey, okay, look, it's the end of the year. Um, we want to be able to give our employees raises and evaluate them properly. Can you send Ismail over to?" To inspect, to inspect them all personally and, and evaluate them. And we were like, yeah, great, you know, fine, no problem, happy to send them there. And then we found out there was a two-week quarantine. Yeah. So we had to do everything by Zoom. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's tough, but again, it's part of that commitment. If I'm going to open up, if I'm going to let franchisees open up stores around the world, we have to be willing, you know, to travel there and help them. Yeah. And we are. So talk to me again about, so, you know, Randy's is the giant donut on the roof. Randy's is handmade, you know, quality, you know, longevity, it's legacy and all of that. But when you go into a new market and nobody, I don't want to say nobody knows Randy's because people know Randy's, but nobody cares about the new Randy's because they cared about the iconic Randy's. So when you go into a new town... And say, hey, it's Randy's. It's just like the other one, except it's not. How do you build? 
How do you build that up? I guess what I'm talking about is is sort of brand identity and marketing. Like how, how do you how do you market in a new I guess a new town in Southern California. Let's, no, answer, I got let's answer the question that way. And then I want to talk about in other markets that really don't know the brand. Well, we start with, you know, a great PR company. Dog and Duck gets that ball rolling months ahead. Okay. You know, it's funny. The funny thing in Las Vegas, we applied for a permit at one of the locations to do some digging. It was a ground, about dirt. And a reporter got wind of it and started spreading all these stories that Randy's is coming to Las Vegas. And we were like, oh, crap. We weren't ready to tell anybody yet. But we had to go out there and we had to say, yeah, we admit it. We're coming. We're, we're doing this and we're doing that. So, again, it starts first with great press, with great press coverage. Um, you know, when you get to the store experience, you know, we do our best to try to get a donut on the roof in every location um, or at least some size of donut out in front of the store. And it's varied from 8 feet to 28 feet um, in each store. But when you walk into that store, every store yeah. has murals, has vinyls on the walls with pictures from the original store, of us in the movies, Iron Man, you know, Ghostbusters, whatever whatever flavor, you know, whatever we've been doing lately. And when they see that, the notion is, yeah, you've walked into that Randy's. It is that Randy's. Um, and beyond that, we rely on the quality of our product. Um, you know, and the word gets out. Yep. I mean, I'll say this to you. I'll say this to you. There's no substitution for a great product. Yeah. You can't get around that. If your product is not you know, all that and the bag of chips and even more. If it's not, then I can tell you, do not, you know, be happy with what you have. Yeah. But do not look to scale it to something large because there's a lot more competition out there than you might give, you, you might understand. And when people see a, what they consider to be a new brand, like uh, I'll give an example, Dutch Brothers, whatever the, the coffee juice i mean the sugary drink mm-hmm. I, all i hear is everybody coming around me in california oh, have you seen that new thing have you said what well, guys it's not new it's been around since 1990. it may be new to you but it's not new to the rest of the world so when you think about expansion you've really got to do your due diligence and see just how many chicken brands are there out there is there room for yet another um, you know, roasted chicken uh, because it's just people are better than than you think. I think it's one of the things that uh, that in our industry we do particularly poorly, um, and certainly the the bigger chains do it okay. But uh, but really understanding market and coming up with product market fit and really thinking about you know, hey, is are there people who want what I'm prepared to 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 give them? You know, is there a need that I can that I can fulfill? So often we just say, you know, I mean, the, the old thing, right? Like, oh, everybody loves my cooking, so they said I should open a restaurant, so I opened a restaurant. Or I've been a I've been a, a sous chef for so long, I, and I, I really wanted to open my own restaurant. Never stopping to think of like, does anybody else care if you ever have your own restaurant? And and understanding that. So, how do you how do you justify that, or how do you make determinations on which markets to go into? 
to say like, hey, this market needs needs more donuts or better donuts or our donuts. How does that conversation happen? We kind of cheat in that way. Explain. Um, we're kind of fortunate because donuts are really considered a forever product. You know, it's one of the true original American desserts or pastries or morning item that was created here in the U.S. Um, there's no market, I think, that doesn't want donuts. Some markets, you know, want certain types. You know, even like you see the artisan, what I call artisanal or gourmet donuts that are out there in the world. And, and certainly there's some shops that do amazing things with their donuts. I mean, I don't necessarily call them donuts anymore. When you can light it on fire and creme brulee, you know, and that's not really a donut to me, but it's certainly a great product. Um, I, I think you have to know your economics. And we, you know, we consider ourselves kind of the in and out of donuts. Um, we know our product. We know our, our customer base. Everybody eats a burger, okay? I would rather sell a $3 in and out burger than a $15, you know, burger, gourmet, ink, whatever. I don't want to use anybody's particular name, but, but then a $15 burger. Um, and I think if you, I think if you can identify the price point you want to be in, and be able to apply that to the largest, or make that accessible to the largest group of people, and you stay within, you know, very popular food categories, I always think you'll be fine. But again, you have to measure it against the competition in your area. Um, you know. I, I'm not being critical or of, of different kinds, but I'll just use an example, Indian food, curry food, Thai food, something like that. Well, that's not going to go in every market. And if you have that, and let's say you want to go to Newport Beach, California, and there's already two Thai or two Indian restaurants there, you know, you may want to ask yourself, have they captured all the business? Yeah. No matter how good your your business is, one thing that your your product is, one thing we don't do is we don't ignore local local favorites. Okay, every territory in the country has got you know a brand they consider to be really good. Yep. And if we agree that they're a good brand, well, we're not going to open up across the street. You know, what are you going to do? You're just going to splinter the business. Yeah, yeah. So that was one of my last questions I was going to ask is that are there markets you won't go into or you won't go into yet and why? And that sort of answers that question. Is there another answer to that question that I'm not thinking of? You know, again, because at our price point, I think there isn't a market we can't go in. And we've learned from the stores that we have already in their locations, economics don't do not matter. If you can go into a wealthy demographics, want our our donuts just the same as as a lower economic bracket does. Um, we learned that lesson with Fox Studios in in Century City, Beverly Hills, whatever technically the location is. They came to us. They were with another donut shop for their commissary, and they came to us and asked us to to start supplying them. And we said, great. Um, but you know, at Fox Studios, they've got like 15, 20 different productions 
I remember at that time, Modern Family and all the popular shows were, were being filmed there under Fox Studios. And all we kept hearing about was, well, you know, this star actress only eats, you know, uh, kale salad with the organic nuts, whatever the case may be. And we're like, okay, these guys are going to want all of our premium type, fancier, you know, velvet, white ganache uh, kind of donuts. And in fact, they didn't. They purchased our classic and deluxe line more than anything else. Our classic glaze, our classic twists. Um, so, you know, in the premium category that we introduced three years ago, it's like 10 to 15% of each store sales. And again, it's that core basic, you know, I mean, you think of it like pizza. Every, where couldn't you put a yeah. pizza place? Please don't put any more pizza places in Brooklyn. We've got enough. No, you have, you have plenty. <laughs> I always tell the joke in my neighborhood. I got, I don't know. I can walk out the door and there's, you know, 10 in any direction. Uh, or I can I can walk north and get to Defara Pizza. And uh, it's super famous and it's twice what all the other pizzas cost. But like, sure. like we don't need any more. We got, we got a bunch of the other guys and then we got that guy. Like, we're, like we're good. But, you know, it's the funniest thing. And, and uh, oh, uh, not Jimmy, not Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, who's the other guy? Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon. That's terrible. I don't remember. But uh, he used to come out to California one week a year and take his shows, shows out there. And he did this whole thing. They did a blow up of our store with our donut. And he jumps on a, a platform and dives through the donut uh, and so forth. And part of all his skits were, I don't understand this. He'll show a picture of a beautiful girl, thin girl in a bikini in California and then donuts. He goes, how does California have more donor shops than anywhere else in the world <laughs> and these people look like this? Well, you know, that goes back to the whole, uh, the craze. We open up by, it just so happens, we open up by a lot of Equinox gyms, you know, which is a very high-end concept. Yeah. And boy, when those classes are over, they're all in in their, in their uh, workout gear. You got to reward yourself. Everybody needs a treat. Yeah. And the more people... The more that the, the world is focused on healthier eating, which is great, obviously, the more people need a treat. And that's what we are. Yeah. Uh, listen, I think that's as good a place as any to end. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, any last words of wisdom for the, the group? You know, take your time. Be patient. You know, really do all of your due diligence and investigation before expanding. Know your competition and create that culture amongst your employees um, of only serving the best product. And you know what? That will pay off for you most in the, in the long run. Finally, tell me, uh, anybody who's hungry for a donut, where can they go? And if anybody wants to learn more about kind of the franchise opportunities, where can they go? Come to our website, randysdonuts.com. Click the franchising page. Um, talk to Jason Eskinosi in our company. And we're happy to, you know, we're happy to discuss with anyone. Even if you may not be ready right now to open up three to five stores, you know, we'll certainly help you and give you any guidance and can. Awesome. Listen, I appreciate you taking the time. Really great story. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of really great insights today. I appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Chip. Thank you for the time. My pleasure.
Once again, I want to thank Mark for taking time out of his day to sit and talk with me. I hope you guys got some value out of that conversation. I think uh, the idea of uh, working with family is something a lot of us are familiar with. I think uh, the idea of growing a brand is something uh, all of us uh, at least think about, if not struggle with. Uh, hopefully, you got some uh, some great little nuggets from this interview. Uh, as always, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to join me. If you haven't done so yet, please consider uh, logging a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. All those five stars really do help us grow our audience. Also, now Spotify uh, takes reviews, takes ratings, rather. So go give us five stars there to help us keep growing this community. Really appreciate it. Uh, Stay tough, stay creative, and I will see you next week.